0: I love the phrase, the words we use do not describe our world, they define it. It means that our language shapes our experience. The language we use when we speak to others and the language we use when we speak to ourselves both shape the experience we create. In fact, the thoughts we think in our mind are actually hypnotic suggestions that go directly straight to the unconscious mind.
1: So in the context of sexuality, this is something very important to remember. The words we use will define what becomes our sexual experience. Many of the words or thoughts we use come from societal myths. But as these ideas are repeated over and over in the psyche, they will determine whether or not sex becomes a source of joy and mutual pleasure or whether they become a source of disappointment and resentment.
0: Did you know the average couple waits six years to get help in their marriage?
1: Yeah, that's six years of pain, hurt, and frustration.
0: Hi there, I'm Charlotte Snow. And I'm Robert Snow. And welcome to Master Your Marriage.
1: Where we believe that having an amazing marriage should never feel like hard work and shouldn't be a guessing game.
0: This is the show for married couples who want to discover a scientifically proven approach to building a masterful marriage and have fun while doing it.
1: So if that's you, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. Today, we're going to talk about entrapping ideas that might be messing with your sex life. We're going to do this in the form of myths. We're going to be debunking 11 myths, and we're going to shed some light why these myths may be harming your most intimate relationships.
0: So while today's episode isn't rated explicit, it might not be appropriate for the younger audiences. So just use your discretion when you're listening to this show in the car with your kids present, I'm certainly going to have fun with it, doing my best to embarrass Robert,
1: make him blush a little bit. That's going to happen. Yeah. All right, let's get rolling. Myth number one, men are always the higher desire partner and women are the lower desire partner. Ooh. Let's kick this one off with that common stereotype. True or false?
0: That is false. Okay. False.
1: The truth is that every relationship has a higher desire partner and a lower desire partner. And not only is that okay, it's absolutely normal. Every relationship has this higher desire person and a lower desire person, and it is not gender specific. The reason why there is always a lower desire person and a higher desire person is because it's just in preferences in the relationship with one another. If you want sex daily and your partner wants sex weekly, you are the higher desire partner. But you could be in a relationship with someone who wants sex twice daily, and now you wanting it only weekly makes you the lower desire partner. It doesn't mean anything. Until we start making it mean something, then it really becomes the problem.
0: Yeah, that's when it becomes the problem, right? That's when it starts going into the you owe me sex or this just feels like obligation or duty sex. Yeah, and those aren't good. Neither of those things are going to make for good sex. The lower desire partner is often kind of made to feel like something must be wrong with them. They must be broken or dysfunctional in some way. And the higher desire partner, they often feel rejected or controlled and manipulated by their lower desire um, partner. So the truth is that every single relationship has this dynamic where there is a higher desire partner and a lower desire partner, and that's just normal.
1: Yeah. Okay. Myth number two. Relationships can thrive without sex. True or false?
0: Ooh, mostly false, I'm going to say.
1: Yeah, mostly false. The caveat is that if two people really don't want anything to do with sexuality, or they can't because maybe there's a health or a physical reason, and as long as both partners are in agreement 100% of the time, they can have a satisfying and, I don't know, even thriving um, sexless intimate relationship.
0: Yes, but in most other cases in other romantic relationships where both people aren't agreeing in such a way sex is really just part of how relationships are put together yeah in relationships people want to know that they're desired i want to feel desired they want to know they're wanted they want to know they're chosen And so part of a thriving relationship is that you want to be close to this person and you want to share yourself with this person. And that means you want to be close to their body and to their mind.
1: And if that isn't the case, you'll want to dig into understanding why. Mm -hmm. Sexual desire problems are common and happen to all couples periodically. But you'll want to try to figure out what the root cause is of that particular problem because it's often not as simple as hormones. Usually something is happening in the marriage or in your own development, this is interfering with your desire.
0: Yeah, that's such a huge thing. We've talked about that in past episodes. How it's—I mean, it can't. I mean, obviously hormones are important, but it's—it's yeah. it's not as simple as hormones. It's usually something much deeper. Yeah. So sometimes this is dealing with your relationship yourself to sexuality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's dealing with your relationship to your own sense of self. Sometimes it's a problem in dealing with your relationship to your partner. So maybe there's been emotional disconnection. Maybe there's been a lack of friendship or resentments that have piled up, or maybe conflict has just been managed really poorly in your relationship. So if you're dealing with sexual desire challenges, first of all, it's normal. And and it's difficult, too, at the same time. But you have to look at what this problem is really exposing. What's it exposing about you What's it exposing about your partnership? Because the sexual problems is usually just the symptom of something else. And it takes a good deal of self-confrontation to look at what is truth here. What is truth so that the sexual relationship can get better?
1: Yeah. And I don't want to go past that too too far. Like, really, if there's a desire problem, um, horm- all the hormones in the world aren't necessarily going to fix that.
0: If Often, it's something
1: else. Oftentimes, it's, it's how close you are in your relationship and maybe what wedges you've let um, kind of develop between the two of you. Absolutely. All right. Myth number three men need sex.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going true. For f- I'm going for, well, you'll say true, but I'm oh. going with false.
1: Okay. Well, <laughs>
0: so what is the actual The actual
1: answer, answer is false. Okay. Men don't need sex any more than women need sex. Sex isn't actually a need at all. Uh, we need oxygen, we need food, and we need water to survive, but we don't need sex to survive. Mm. We may want sex, and there's no question that sex is incredibly important to a valuable, it's it's incredibly important and valuable in a thriving relationship. Sex can help us to experience pleasure and really make us feel connected with one another.
0: Yeah, but that's very different from needing right It's very different from needing and for many women we're taught that this is the right way of thinking that it's framed like men need it so you must provide it which means it's setting up a system from the beginning where sex is a job or it's an obligation
1: that doesn't sound good
0: right and and when you do that it puts all of the attention on his needs and his pleasure And in doing that, it can minimize her needs and cause her to even feel sometimes used.
1: Yeah, that's not the way to go. Certainly some men play this card like, oh, I need sex. And they may use it, um, this position to control and put pressure on their spouse into having more sex. But this actually works against us in the long run because framing this way sort of creates resentment. And resentment, well, it kills desire. It takes it out of the frame of passion and puts it into the frame of needing. And any time you put it in the realm of needing, it becomes an obligation. And none of us really want to feel accommodated. We want to feel desired.
0: Myth number four, men's sexuality is more important than women's sexuality.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with false.
0: Good thing you said false. Good thing, yeah. (laughs) Often sex gets set up this way, though, where men need it. Again, women need to be the ones to provide it. And sex is just something that we do because men need to be kept happy. Well, why? Because sex is more important to them. Mm, uh, That's the myth.
1: Yeah, I think that is. But when couples prioritize men's pleasure, both partners are pretty much miserable. Mm -hmm. One person feels as as if they're being tolerated. And the other one feels as if they have an obligation neither of which is good for relationships it kills desire and it kills intimacy mm-hmm. it creates resentment on both sides and it doesn't accrue to great sex passion or fun so mm-hmm. it's actually really important for both partners to value sex for both of the individuals
0: yeah I love that it's important for both of us to value it for both of us yeah for both of yeah us. Right. all right myth number five one of my favorites Good girls don't love sex.
1: Um, I'm going to say false. Yeah,
0: false. But oh boy, did purity culture do a number on some of us women, right, that have had this belief. We talked about this in a past episode. Yeah, we did. um, And I shared some of my personal experiences with that. But good women actually do love sex. When women are at peace with themselves, when they're at peace with their body and their sexual nature, they really do can love sex. They enjoy their body. They they love that they have this capacity for sexual pleasure. And they do this because they know that their body was designed for this. In fact, the female anatomy, in particular, the clitoris, has no function other than to provide her with pleasure. So good women love sex because they know there's nothing to be ashamed of. They know that they're good and they're worthy of enjoying their own sensuality And they don't need to necessarily put their husband's needs above their own. They can put their needs on the same level because to think otherwise would set them both up for resentment. Remember, there's nothing virtuous about denying your sexuality. Sometimes we like to pretend that there is, but denying your sexuality is really a sign of something broken inside and it leads to feelings of resentment. It leads to feeling never enough. So it's really important for us as women to come to terms with our own sexuality and to recognize it as good and beautiful and God given that we have this capacity to experience pleasure.
1: Yeah, I think that's important to, um, as I think about that, just to you know to see it as something that's beautiful. I mean, yeah. if if really that's what the sex organs are designed for, then why is that a wrong thing?
0: Well, that reframe, you know, years ago tremendously helped me to love my own body when up to that point I didn't. Yeah. So I think that's it's really important to reframe it in that way.
1: Yeah. So it's really vital that women come to peace with their own sexuality. When you do, it makes you a stronger person and more capable of receiving goodness and love into your life. Integrating your sexuality not only makes your marriage stronger, it makes you stronger.
0: All right. What's the next myth?
1: All right. Myth number six. If you give your man enough sex, he won't stray. Mm-hmm. He won't look at porn. He won't cheat. What do mm-hmm. you think?
0: Definitely not buying that. I think that's false.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's false. Okay. Someone, Some women believe that they have to provide sex in order to gain control over their spouse. This does terrible things to the relationship. First, it sets up an expectation that men are inherently not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And it presupposes that men cannot control their own sexuality.
0: Yeah. And if a woman thinks that, right, if I think that about my husband, that he can't control his sexuality and he can't be trusted, then that also probably means I'm not going to be able to open up to him in other ways, to trust him in other things, in other contexts, because he is this inherently untrustworthy person.
1: Yeah. And this is where the intimacy and vulnerability are just so intertwined like we have to trust if if i don't trust you then i can't be vulnerable with you right right i can't i can't yeah. open up and share all of the things about me and so if i can't be vulnerable then i can't be as intimate and then without intimacy there's a lack of connection
0: right and if i believe that i have to use sex to control you then that means i can't trust you so it inherently erodes trust
1: yeah and without a doubt so it's this nice little cycle right mm-hmm Um, I think it also can breed contempt because she probably looks down on him for being this weak person who can't control his sexuality. Exactly.
0: And this would also set up sex more like a transaction where
1: nobody wants that.
0: If I give you this, then you do that. And that, again, makes this needs based system where I need to give him sex in order for him to give me trust and commitment. And so within that framework, women are not really choosing. They're not really desiring their their partner they're just servicing them and keeping them right under their thumb and this is always going to create resentment on both sides because again resentment is poison to desire based sexuality
1: yeah and we're coming to sort of one of my favorite ones right um so myth number 7 arousal and desire are the same thing mm-hmm. i'm aroused and such and then i desire yes or no
0: i used to think that that was true yeah. long time ago i thought you know and not understanding this, I thought that arousal, well, if I'm aroused, that must mean that I want it. But why don't I really want it right now? But I am aroused. And it also made me think that just because you were aroused, I needed to do something about it.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, they, and that sort of created a frustrating situation for right. both of us.
0: So this, this myth is false.
1: Right. You're right. Arousal is something that you don't really have control over. You can be aroused at things that surprise you or even things that you don't even find acceptable. Arousal is mostly out of your control. It's an automatic physiological response. Arousal can happen from visual stimuli, touch, or random thought. Arousal can happen from internal fluctuations like hormones. And we can be anchored to get aroused by certain things even in our environment. For men, arousal leads to a more obvious erection.
0: Whereas for women, usually less obvious, a little more subtle, but it can be indicated by a slight engorgement of sexual tissue. It might um, or it might not include vaginal lubrication. But the point is that all of these things are happening as part of arousal and they're happening automatically and you don't have control over them.
1: Yeah. So desire, on the other hand, this is different. Desire is when you decide that you want to act on this arousal. So they are very two different things. Arousal always comes first for both men and women and desire may or may not even follow after that.
0: Right. And most people, what's interesting, I think, is that most people actually believe that men get aroused more easily because it's more obvious.
1: It's but, usually more obvious for men.
0: But that's actually false as well. Women... Oh, yeah. Women actually get aroused more easily than men do because they're more sensitive to the things in their environment.
1: Because So, so stop right there. Yeah. Like, isn't that awesome? Like, if you think about that from a guy's perspective, it's like, wait a second, women get aroused more easily than men? Yeah. Like all this, all this time we always thought because, you know, because arousal was obvious for us, we always just sort of felt that that, that created us into this higher desire partner role when mm-hmm. in real realistically, especially if the woman is spending time understanding her own sexuality and living in it. She wants it too. She wants it too. Right. Yeah. Right. How surprising is that?
0: So one of the reasons why we can become aroused more easily is because generally speaking as women, we're a little more feeling based. We're a little bit more sensitive to our feelings. And so this can lead to um, us becoming more easily aroused by things in our environment, in our thoughts, the things that are around us. So, but again, let's reiterate that arousal is different for her than the feeling of desire. That's where this becomes uh, a very different scenario between men and women. So for women, it doesn't lead necessarily to desire.
1: So here's here's the trick, right? For men, it's a fairly straight line from arousal to desire, right? Women generally a little bit slower to get arousal to desire to make that connection, but it doesn't mean women don't have that capacity. In fact, women have an equal or greater capacity. Um, They're just slower to convert this arousal into desire.
0: Exactly. And that's probably actually by design. I think that's actually a really good thing that women are more designed, generally speaking, in this way because women are the ones that have the biological burden of what if I get pregnant? What if I pass on diseases? And so we sit and think about it for a minute and whether or not we should actually act on that, you know, that arousal and it, turn it into desire.
1: Yeah, probably because the consequences, right, are much Exactly. Steeper, right. Yeah. All right. Myth number eight. Men are more sexual than women.
0: Mm-mm-mm. I used to think so, but that is false.
1: That's false. Right. Yeah. It is false. Men generally do go from arousal to desire more quickly, as we talked about. And in a more direct line, and they also may orgasm faster. So, if you use that context, if you compare men to women based on that standard alone, it would be easy to just sort of get trapped into the thinking that women are deficient or less sexual in some way. But, but,
0: but, this is just not true. Women have incredible sexual capacity, even though women are a slower you know, to get there, slower to maybe feel desires slower to get fully aroused, slower to orgasm. The other flip side of that is actually some really great things that women can actually stay aroused much longer than men. Women have also a shorter refractory period, which means where men would typically need a couple of hours before they could ejaculate again. Women only need a few seconds or sometimes just a few minutes which is why women can have multiple orgasms. So even though we're slower, we have this incredible capacity.
1: Yeah. So we shouldn't base our beliefs about women's capacity just on the way that men's bodies work. Right. Both men and women have a tremendous potential for sexuality.
0: Exactly. Now, there's one thing that can throw this all into the weeds.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) This one will.
0: Anxiety can throw this whole system off anxiety around sexuality happens to both men and women, even though it's not really socially talked about that much for men. Right. Um, but if a woman is anxious, we most of us know that she's probably going to be slower to orgasm. And this is why I think it's so important that we're having this discussion today because a lot of the myths that we've already covered accrue to more anxiety for her. So if she is anxious, she's going to be slower to get to desire, slower to be able to orgasm. Um, You know, if she has performance anxiety because she's the lower desire partner, or if she's worried about servicing her husband, or if she's not at peace with her own body, or she doesn't believe she deserves pleasure, or if she has that good girl syndrome where she thinks she's bad for having these thoughts, Well, guess what? That all leads to anxiety and it's anxiety that's going to interfere with her body's capacity to reach orgasm. Yeah.
1: And we think about that. You know, if you've been in a relationship long enough, you'll know that the women in your life are like, you know, sometimes they get a lot of stuff rolling around in their head. Right. And and we think guys are just simple, like, here we go. Um,
0: And think of anxiety for women as the brakes in your car.
1: Yeah, they're just pumping the brakes, right? you are just
0: pumping the brakes. Like, I felt aroused, but now I don't. I felt aroused, but it's not turning into desire. I felt aroused, but now I just can't get there. I can't orgasm. So those anxieties, which stem from a lot of these myths and other things as well, they, they pump the brakes. Yeah,
1: but this doesn't happen to guys, does it?
0: It does in a different way.
1: It does? It oh. hits the
0: gas for guys.
1: <laughs> so it's Sorry. actually the opposite is true for men. When men feel anxious about their sexuality or they... Feel like, maybe they're afraid of disappointing their partner um, or when men feel rejected in some way, they're more likely to, I would say, do one of two because we shared a story on one of our other podcasts. Maybe they'll even fail to get interaction. but if they can make it to arousal and desire, oftentimes if they have anxiety, they will ejaculate quickly or prematurely. And men and women respond to anxiety in such different ways, this can become a real problem in relationships. This is why it's so important for couples to learn how to manage their anxiety and to have peace with their own body and their own sexuality so that they can pace their sexual experience together.
0: Yeah, and have just like a mutually rewarding experience together. So important. So gas gas and brakes for guys versus girls usually Yeah. Yeah, when anxiety hits. All right, let's move on to myth number nine. The clitoris is inferior to the penis.
1: Um, I know this answer. It's false.
0: It's false. But gosh, so many of us as women kind of hear this message that it's just, you know, not as not as good or whatever. But it's actually very impressive. The clitoral system we're going to talk a little bit about um, in utero development. But the clitoral system is is pretty much the same genetic code as the penis. Why don't you talk about how that works?
1: Well, so at about six weeks in utero, um, an embryo differentiates and becomes either male or female. So the same genetic material in the female becomes the clitoral system. However, the female genitalia is just a bit more hidden.
0: Right. And the clitoris, just so we don't get confused about where it's at, as we often do, right? It kind of gets lost in there between the, the folds of the labia. But it's right at the point, under the point, where the inner labia meets and forms this little hood that is known as the clitoral hood. And there, under that spot, there are thousands of nerve endings in that tiny little area, actually, more than in any other part of the human body.
1: Male or female.
0: Right. So, yeah. the head of the clitoris is pretty much the genetic equivalent of the penis, but not the whole penis, just the head of the penis. And the clitoris is super sensitive here's the thing. It's not just that little magic button that's under the hood. It goes far beyond that. The rest of the clitoris extends into the pelvic cavity, and it's shaped like a V. So if we were to compare it to the penis, genetically speaking, the the genetic material, the shaft of the penis is somewhat similar to the roots of the clitoris that are actually, they extend into the vagina opening and are part of the pelvic floor.
1: Okay, so this mythical G-spot.
0: Yeah, what's that about?
1: Well, so that's part of the the clitoral network. And, And that entire network is part of a woman's capacity for pleasure. So don't be fooled by the idea that the clitoral hood is the equivalent to the penis. The clitoral network is much bigger than what you actually see on the outside.
0: Yeah, and all of it is good, right? All of it is sensitive um, all of it, 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 all of it feels really good, whether that's through manual stimulation or oral stimulation or stimulation with an erect penis. It's really just incredibly amazing to learn more about. And I will drop actually some of my favorite books that helped me to learn about my body. I'll drop those in the show notes. But I think learning about it is so important because it helps us to love our body so much more and to embrace our sexuality that much more.
1: And just even embrace what what the clitoris is really designed to do.
0: And our capacity for pleasure. It's amazing.
1: Okay. Myth number 10. Intercourse is the most important way for men and women to experience pleasure.
0: False. 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 False.
1: False. Probably because of the last one. We already know (laughs) That's the truth. Yes. So intercourse can be a great part and a meaningful part, but it's not the greatest way to stimulate and arouse women. For women... The way to arouse her is through her whole body. Maybe it's kissing, uh, touching the back of her neck, or touching these non-erogenous areas. This then communicates to her that she is important and not just an object for pleasure.
0: This is how, when we talk about moving from arousal to desire, this lead up, right? All of the touch and all of the other areas, not just going straight for the clitoris. Like This is how women move from arousal to desire. And women... I think, are made this way by design. Again, I think it's part and because we're more biologically vulnerable. So for women, this is how we know we're with someone who's going to take care of us. We're with someone we can trust. We're with someone who is safe. And we need that time to get our bodies super aroused, totally desiring and ready for orgasm. And then when we're ready, when we're aroused, then the clitoris needs to be stimulated for orgasm. So that's why intercourse isn't like the act for women, really. Yeah. You know, I mm. mean, generally speaking.
1: Yeah. And generally, it's not where you want to start. It's where you want to end. And in terms of intercourse, as you mentioned earlier, less than 30% of women actually orgasm reliably through penetration alone. Intercourse just doesn't typically provide the stimulation that the clitoris needs in order to orgasm.
0: So what does all of this mean? It means that sex really shouldn't be so intercourse focused, nope. right? So when you're intercourse focused, there tends to be a, uh, there's a tendency to maybe like, oh, quick, get through the foreplay. Let's kiss for 30 seconds and then hurry off to the main event, which of course, intercourse, right? But a better way to really think about it is to focus on what would be a variety of things, a variety of activities that we could do that are all going to promote getting from arousal to right? To desire, to being ready, like what's going to promote arousal, what's going to promote connection, what's going to promote sensuality, what's going to create pleasure. And all of those activities are going to accrue to having a mutually rewarding experience for both people.
1: Yeah. And on the topic of intercourse, so um, some of you may or may not know, I'm professionally trained as a physical therapist. Um, So some of my pelvic floor therapist Mm. colleagues Uh, I love the, and and this is with women who are having difficulty with, with, you know, any one of issues post usually after babies, but, um, and maybe intercourse is painful for them. And they have a term, it's actually called outer course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I I think that outer course, which would be stimulating external genitalia um, and even stimulating the rest of the body is almost as important um, and can lead to a much more satisfying sexual experience that maybe even intercourse, especially if that's a if that's an issue for you.
0: That's a really good point. And when there's been trauma. Yeah. Too. Yeah. That definitely can be the case. Yeah.
1: And if it's less than 30%, then like, you know, why not 60% of the time let's do something different. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, good point. Love that. Okay.
1: Okay. Myth number 11. Um, responsibility for pleasure comes from my partner.
0: Oh, who gets the responsibility for my pleasure? Yeah. Hmm.
1: True or false? False. False. Haven't they all been faults?
0: Yes. Yeah, they have that's been That's why all they're false. called myths. That's <laughs> why they're called
1: myths. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so pleasure is a collaboration. Um, However, individually, we have to take deeper responsibility for our own pleasure by learning how our own body works. And the hard part is learning how to give that information to your partner so that we can have a solid collaboration on creating this joy, creating this intimacy, and then creating something great together.
0: Exactly. And as Robert just said, that can be really difficult to communicate that way if you can't manage your own anxiety around these types of conversations.
1: Hey, it's not just the good girl syndrome, you know, the, the good boy syndrome. I I had difficulty talking about those types of things totally. as well. So it's it's hard for me to, it was hard for me to have those types of conversations yeah. and to be vulnerable as well.
0: To be vulnerable, it is vulnerable because you have to share this part of yourself that is is scary and you don't know like am i going to be shamed for wanting this or saying that this feels good am i going to be rejected for what i'm about to tell my partner yeah and that doesn't yeah. and and it's hard to get over that for people yeah
1: but if you don't if you don't manage your anxieties as in you know learn to have these conversations you know if nothing changes nothing changes and this is why relationships going having just mediocre or boring sex for decades because they just can't manage to have these conversations. They can't handle them. And it's not just women. Men have just as much anxiety about their sexuality as, as the women do. They're usually just less vocal and or, and especially in my case, embarrassed to talk about it.
0: Yep. So men, just like women, have the job of coming to peace with themselves and their sexual nature, strengthening their own sense of self, And then taking responsibility for their pleasure by communicating to their partner and creating this collaboration that we talked about.
1: Yeah. So to come back to what we said in the beginning, the words you used just don't describe your world. They define it. As we wrap up this episode, remember, be kind to each other, put each other first. And remember, it's the small and simple things each day that create strong relationships.
0: Until next time.
1: Thank you for listening to Master Your Marriage. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, then we want to hear from you. Just go to MasterYourMarriagePodcast.com and send us your question.
0: Oh, and while you're there, you can also check out our retreats and events and even apply for coaching.
1: And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get advanced notice of when the next episode drops, plus show notes and many extras. Thanks again for tuning in.